welcome everyone to another edition of Government by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Rupel, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. Thank you for sharing the show with a friend, uh, giving the stars, thumbs up, reviews, all those things help to get this uh, podcast out to more more individuals. And also keep in mind, uh, I haven't really said this much before, and I really should do a better job of it, but I'm part of the Christian podcast community. So if you uh, Google search that, or if you go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org, there are lots of podcasts that uh, I am part of, essentially, a group that we're part of. Um, so there's plenty out there to choose from, and I highly encourage you to go take a look at the Christian podcast community and see what else uh, you might find to be very interesting. So anyways, thank you uh, for tuning in, and for those of you who support the show, thank you as well. So let's begin with our law of the day. All right, law of the day is Exodus 21, verses 18 through 19. When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall have him thoroughly healed. So the intent behind this law is to provide restitution for injury and for loss of work. So it is clear that the use of a stone or a fist implies that it was a non-lethal attempt, really. Um, There are other laws in the Old Testament that discuss the situation if certain objects, like an iron tool that could cause death, uh, is used, or if the victim, of course, dies, that becomes a whole different situation. But in this situation, it looks like, okay, a stone, a fist, whatever is typically a non-lethal object is, is, is in mind here. Now, there are two outcomes if this fight results in injury. The first is there's no seemingly permanent damage. The injured man is recovering, uh, is resting, uh, he's neither killed nor disabled. And if that's the case, then the offending party, the, the I guess, you know, the person who did the injury, the offender, uh, is responsible for two things. First is medical recovery, paying for that person to be healed, and paying for lost time from work. Now, if there was to be a death or some kind of permanent damage, there would be other laws that would apply. And you would we would look to laws such as eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Uh, There are other laws, such as Numbers 35, that talk about the cities of refuge where if the victim dies, then the question is, was it an intentional murder or was it manslaughter, kind of heat of the moment or even just completely accidental? Well, in this case, it was a fight, so it would have been more of heat of the moment kind of thing. And there may be a situation where the killer is allowed to Um, maybe have his life spared if he flees to the city of refuge and there's not two or three witnesses or or maybe it's determined that it wasn't he wasn't trying to kill him okay but it was just a fight and in that case the offender is exiled and has to live in the city of refuge for the rest of the life of the high priest i'll spend more time in the future talking about cities of refuge when we get to those laws because it does require a bit more work and explanation to understand how that all makes sense in the land of Israel. Now, 
if it was found that the person was murdered and that the offender is guilty of murder, then the offender is to be executed. And in the cases of murder, so long as there are two or three witnesses, uh, a ransom cannot be paid for the murderer to be freed. So in some instances, the offender could pay the victim's family in order to make restitution and not forfeit their own life as the, as the killer. In the case of intentional murder or first-degree murder, the offender could not simply pay the victim's family in order to get out of the execution, in order to get out of being punished. So the law does not discern who started the fight or why there was a fight in the first place. It doesn't, it doesn't make that uh, an issue, really. So uh, whoever is the offender or the offended party, uh, it's not so much that, it's so much the, the result of the fight. So if there's a disagreement, uh, both sides are responsible to exercise self-control. I mean, even if one of the individuals had been wronged in the past and was confronting the other person about some injustice that was done and hasn't been dealt with, well, even if the offended party was correct in bringing it up and confronting the person, if it results in a fight where the, the first individual uh, hurts the other man to get revenge, that is wrong. Uh, quite simply, the citizens, the individuals, may not take justice in their own hands. So even if you have a legitimate case or concern, uh, certainly you may confront a person about it and talk to them and ask them to make it right. But if if they refuse, you may not go any further uh, to essentially punish them or, or get revenge on them. That is for the civil government to, to take care of, to handle. So no, no becoming a vigilante uh, is important here. Uh, the only example of a situation where an individual may kill another person is the uh, Avenger blood. Well, aside from, of course, self-defense, war, capital punishment, is the issue of the Avenger of Blood. And the Avenger of Blood is actually an official title. Uh, it's, a, it's a legal title. Um, basically, I believe it's the closest male relative to the victim or the victim's family. And that person's job is to bring about injustice. And again, uh, worth going into more at a later point, but the Avenger of Blood was an official position. It was God-ordained, and it was instituted so that executions could be, could be carried out throughout the country. And this is a very decentralized country, a very agrarian country, with a very small, limited central government. So when a crime occurred, then that nearest male blood relative would essentially be deputized as a judge to go about and, and make sure that justice was done. But there were limitations placed upon that person. I mentioned before in the Cities of Refuge that the Avenger of Blood could not go to the City of Refuge and kill the person that was in exile. If, if someone was guilty of manslaughter and they lived in exile and they followed the rules, the Avenger of Blood was not allowed to kill them. And if he did, then he would be guilty of, uh, of a crime. But if the person guilty of manslaughter basically violated parole and left the city of refuge and disregarded the rules and the regulations concerning when he's allowed to leave, 
which he can't do so until the high priest dies, then it's fair game. And the Avenger of Blood may, uh, may kill that person because he broke the rules. He broke his exile, his parole. So that is uh, basically the law in the nutshell. And some important implications for us is that, first of all, medical expenses and lost work are the things that need to be covered when damage is done. So the government doesn't pay for the person to get better, and the victim doesn't pay for himself to get better. The offending party, the person that did the damage, needs to pay for lost time, lost wages, and for medical expenses. Uh, Another thing to keep in mind is that the offender, so the person who did the harm, does not pay the government or get imprisoned. That doesn't help anybody. If you throw him into prison, now he's not able to pay to work and pay for the medical expenses and the lost time of the victim. So the criminal should not be thrown in prison for something like this. I mean, murder is a different story. But for something where injury was done out of, out of anger, out of a fight, the right thing to do is not to send that person to prison and uh, basically not execute justice. To send that person to prison is not justice. And to make that person, uh, the criminal, pay, pay the government is not justice in the eyes of God. The issue is one of restitution and paying the victim for damage done to the victim. All right, moving on to our main topic of the day. We're going to look at Lex Rex. We're going to continue our study of Lex Rex. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, I'm going through the book Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, uh, written in the 1600s, about limited government and also civil disobedience and resistance theory. Now, again, it's a very short book. Uh, it's written in very, very short chapters. Each chapter is a question that Rutherford addresses. And the first chapter that we're on today is chapter six. The question is, is conquest a legitimate means of acquiring a nation? This is a important question. If, if a foreign nation conquers you, do you submit to them? Is it lawful for them to conquer you, to conquer your country? Now, Rutherford does talk about how a people might submit to a foreign conqueror just to spare their lives. This does not make the conqueror legitimate or his conquest lawful. Now, he also does say that unless God commands submission to a conqueror, there's no necessary requirement that you submit when you get conquered by a foreign country. So there's an example of Jeremiah and Babylon, where in the book of Jeremiah, God does command Israel to submit to Babylon to not fight it anymore. But that is a special case where God commands submission to a foreign invader. But aside from that, uh, conquest is not necessarily approved by God. Now, conquest might be a judgment that God ordains, but that does not make it lawful. So to give a couple examples, in Isaiah chapter 10, God even says that he uses Assyria as a rod of discipline against Israel. He's going to He's going to allow Syria, bring Syria in to punish Israel for Israel's wickedness. But at the, at the end of Isaiah 10, God talks about how he is going to turn around and uh, discipline Assyria for their haughtiness and pride and wickedness as well. Because the king of Assyria, 
His invasion of Israel is not because he loves God. It's not because he's trying to discipline Israel. He really wants to serve God. No, he's prideful and boastful. He wants to conquer the world. And even though God's going to use Assyria, he's also then going to punish Syria for the wickedness of his heart. Another example would be Pontius Pilate. God certainly ordained and uh, organized all things to happen so that Jesus would be crucified. That was plan A. That was part of God's plan that was going to happen. And Pilate was part of that. So everything that happened was ordained by God. But that doesn't mean that Pilate was right to do it. Okay, So that's the idea here, is that even though conquest might be ordained by God, it might be God's judgment, that doesn't make the conqueror lawful or legal in what he is doing. And so uh, strong nations do not have the right to conquer weak nations. All people are born free from civil slavery. And this is another important point that Rutherford brings up. Parents do not have the right to sell their children into slavery any more than they have the right to murder them. In the same way, governments do not have the right to sell or surrender their own people to a foreign nation or to allow them to be murdered or conquered by another nation. The only reason to surrender is simply to preserve life. So violence does not make a government either legitimate or illegitimate. If a lawful government, if the, if the current government is destroyed by a foreign invader, it is still the lawful government, even if it doesn't really exist or is in exile. And that, that happened a lot in many wars. Uh, there's plenty of instances, even in the modern era, uh, for example, in World War II, many governments had to flee the, uh, the Nazis And even though the Nazis established puppet governments when they conquered a place, the legitimate government was still living in exile, all right? So just because the legitimate government has been essentially destroyed doesn't mean that it's no longer the legitimate government. If a foreign government establishes itself by violence, so again, Nazi Germany or Emperor Napoleon, uh, doesn't really matter, pick your poison, um... If that foreign government establishes another puppet government by violence or just puts itself in place by violence, it is still an unlawful government. And it is God who is the one who portions out the land as he sees fit. And it's interesting because God's allowed to do this. So God is allowed to send Israel into the land of Canaan. If Israel were to enter Canaan without God's permission, they would be in sin. God is the one who divvies out the land as he sees fit. And if he wishes to evict the Canaanites, he can do so using a flood, he could do so using an earthquake, or he could do so using an invasion. It's God using Israel as a tool to judge the land of Canaan, the pagan nations in there. The thing is, though, is that when a nation tries to conquer another nation without God's permission, that nation... The conquering one is trying to play God. And it is very interesting that throughout human history, that is exactly what has happened with any emperor or king or general that conquered. Napoleon, Hitler, they all tried to redivide Europe into the pieces and parts that they saw fit, basically playing God. And that was not what they were called to do. They were not authorized to do that, as Rutherford makes it very clear in chapter 6. 
Now, the question in chapter 7 is, are all men born free? And is slavery contrary to nature? Now, he starts off by saying that civil power is not inherent in nature. Neither is subjugation or slavery. And let me explain that a little bit more carefully. Civil power is a result of human decisions and actions. Basically, a community gets together to form a government. And this government has civil power. It's the result of human decisions, of human actions. Maybe in the past, of course, certainly the children that are born are going to grow up living under that government. But at some point in the past, that government was established by human actions. It's not organically natural in the sense that it just is that way. No, it was made that way through human decisions. Uh, The same thing is true regarding slavery and subjugation. Nobody is born a slave to another human by nature. That happens through choices. Either the parents make some bad choices or some other folks make other choices, you know, to, let's say, conquer and enslave those parents and their children. Slavery is contrary to nature, as Rutherford says, and it's a result of living in a fallen and sinful world. It's an evil. It's not a good thing. Slavery was not part of the original order. It's, it's not good. It's wicked. Now, political compliance or political slavery, if we want to go so far as to describe a totalitarian government, political slavery is also not a good thing. It's a result of living in a fallen world, and it's a result of human decisions and human evil. So he goes on to say that all men are born equal, in the sense that they're all equally under sin and the sting of death. And no ruler, no king, is naturally any less sinful than any other person by nature. He uses the phrase that um, no person comes out of the womb with a crown on his head, which is kind of a a funny imagery there, but I think it quite uh, makes the point. Uh, No one is naturally the king simply by being born, unless that kind of a system or society had been already formed and agreed upon by previous human actions. So political society, political government is natural in that it is the result of our current state of things in this world. It's voluntary and free in the way it is expressed, whether it's a republic, whether it's a democracy or a monarchy, whatever the case may be, that is um, voluntary and free in how it was formed. And rulers are made by the consent of the people. Even if that consent is uninformed. Okay, so that's an important point to keep up because, you know, one might say, well, how how is communist China or North Korea or Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, how are those people consenting to those governments? Well, they were. Okay, and it could be, it could be implicit in the, in the sense that even though the people are not ex- explicitly joyful about what they are doing or where they live, they're allowing it. They have no desire to resist they have no desire to change things. It's, and, and in those moments, they're still consenting. They would rather live in those realms than risk going to prison or risk starving or risk being executed. So that's the choice that they have made. They consent to it. And even if it's uninformed, even if they've been lied to, if it's been propaganda being used against them, the state media is being used against them, it's still consent. 
it's still always consent by the people. Now, of course, you can trick the people. You can lie to them. You can threaten them. You can coerce them. But at the end of the day, you have to get them to consent to the government. It might not be the nicest and the cleanest way of doing it, but it still has to get done. Another uh, example that Rutherford uses, and this is the primary example that he uses to, to show how, how there's a difference between, the, between natural government and, let's say, family government. And, and it's the example of the family. Humans are born naturally under the authority of their parents. It's a biological and natural hierarchy. Okay, so in that regard, fathers are naturally fathers. Even if they're not good fathers, they're naturally fathers. They naturally have the authority over their children. But civil government, civil rulers and kings, they're not born. They are established, appointed, or inaugurated by the people. And he, he ends it with this, with this quote. He says, The main difference is that while men are subjects by nature to their parents, they are subject to the government by law, not the divine right of any ruler. So in this chapter, he's kind of attacking the idea of the divine right of kings, which is actually not a typically medieval idea. It came about later on uh, during this time period in human history and in Europe, and it's not actually a Christian idea. Uh, it's a very twisted version of, uh, of Romans 13 and any other text that, uh, that describes the role of government. And Rutherford here is attacking the concept that monarchs are monarchs by nature and not by the consent of the people. The consent of the people is key uh, in, in this book and in Rutherford's understanding of how government works and his observations of human history and, and human nature. So this does have implications for us, certainly. Uh, the idea of consent of the people is very much in part of uh, the United States, the founding of the United States, and our own founding documents. Um, we understood the idea of the consent of the people uh, and the rights of the people uh, that were given by God and were inalienable. They could not be destroyed or removed by a government. And so, again, another reason why this book is so important, and I would encourage any Christian and, of course, any American to read this book because uh, like I said before, Lex Rex had a direct influence upon John Locke, and both of these men, Locke and Rutherford, had a direct influence on the founding of the American Republic. That will do it for our study of Lex Rex today. Thank you for joining me. I hope it's been a blessing and very useful to you. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, all those, uh, all those sites. So thank you again, and until next time, take care and God bless.